Hello, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 82, That Which Is In The Underworld. Today, we continue our look at the funerary texts of the mid-18th dynasty, exploring what Egyptians of all social classes thought of the underworld itself. Today, we dig deep into the royal sphere, what was inscribed on the walls of the king's tombs, and how that conveyed a particular theological message. Today, we explore the text known as the Book of the Hidden Chamber, aka the Amduat. This episode is brought to you by Shyam Lee Joe, Ariel Melton, and Mark Leiterman. Thank you folks for your support. May Hathor grant you her protection. The text we explore today, the Amduat, emerged around the beginning of the New Kingdom, and it was a popular subject for royal tomb paintings for many centuries afterwards. In fact, it was being used in various pieces right throughout the New Kingdom. So the Amduat, or the Book of the Hidden Chamber, is an extremely important religious text, and I think if you want to understand the funerary mindset of the ancient Egyptians, at least in this time, it's helpful to know what the Amduat is. In its basic structure, the Amduat is more like a story than the collection of spells which make up the famous Book of the Dead. The Amduat tells a particular theological narrative, the story of how the sun god Re traversed the night sky and the underworld on his way to being reborn at the horizon at each dawn. It was an incredibly important piece of decoration. And at the particular time period that we're looking at, the reign of Amunhotep II, the Amduat was one of the only religious texts used in the royal tombs. So, yeah, it's kind of important. Before we begin, let me just set the scene. The Amduat is divided into 12 chapters, each one corresponding to an hour of the night. As these chapters progress, Ray, in his solar boat, moves slowly further and further into the netherworld. He reaches the utmost depths around hours 6 and 7, and then he begins to ascend once more, heading for the eastern horizon and his final rebirth. I'm going to go through the hours sequentially one by one, with a small pluck of the musical chords to signify when we're transitioning. Now then, let's begin. Hour 1. The Rejoicing at the Appearance of Ray. As Ray crossed the western horizon and sank beyond the earthly realm, down into the depths of the netherworld, his light shone upon a vast expanse of territory within the depths of the nether. As this light beamed down upon them, dozens of gods who were living within the darkness awoke and arose in order to offer praise to the coming of the sun. It seems that this first hour of the underworld was utterly dark, and only with the appearance of Ray did these beings experience any kind of light or visibility. So as you can guess, the coming of Ray was a fantastic moment for them. 
So the first hour of the Amduat was given over to celebration as Ray re-entered the underworld, and so brought energy and life to those who dwelled within. These gods and goddesses of the first hour took the form of baboons, jackals, serpents, and ordinary men and women. They stood upon the banks of the Celestial Nile, the river which ran through the underworld just as the Nile ran through Egypt. As they stood on the banks, they watched Ray's boat appearing on the river, and they lifted their arms in rejoicing. Ray had returned to banish darkness. The night had become the day. The boat of Ray was guarded by his entourage, a series of gods who carried swords or serpents in order to protect Ray from any dangers. These gods and goddesses took various forms, but the most important member of Ray's bodyguard was the goddess Ma'at. Ma'at, the goddess of truth and order, stood before the boat of Ray in order to clear the way and to remind all who looked upon the sun god that her power, the power of order, was here even in the depths of the underworld. The appearance of Ma'at was so important, so crucial to establishing the rules of the underworld, that she actually appears in the first hour twice. There are two versions of Ma'at, each identical, standing side by side. This came from the Egyptians' love of duality, of, wherever possible, representing major concepts in duplicate. But more importantly, it was kind of a literal way of doubling down on the power of Ma'at, of making sure that her strength and her ability to control events could not be contested. With Ma'at coming forth, and all of the gods rejoicing at Rei's arrival, the first hour now came to its conclusion. Ray and his boat and his entourage hoisted their sails and began to journey inwards. Now they were approaching the depths of the nether itself. Hour 2. The Gate of the Duat As the second hour began, Ray and his companions entered into what might be considered the underworld proper. The first hour was sort of a waiting room for the deceased. The second hour was where the netherworld, the Duat, actually began in earnest. The second hour was depicted as a realm of abundance. It featured a great lake or sea called Werness, and as Ray's boat sailed upon it, all the deceased now came forth in order to receive the blessings of the god. The second hour was when Ray began to fulfil his duties as a kind of patron and benefactor to the souls of the deceased. As Ray passed into the second hour, a great horde of people now came forward. These were the blessed dead, those who had passed into the underworld and now lived within the depths of the Duat. They were not kings, merely ordinary folk, and they could not necessarily rely on their relatives or families in the living world to pass on offerings to them, and so give their souls energy. Recognising this issue, the Egyptian theologians inserted this section where Ray gave abundance to those who could not afford it for themselves. In this way, the sun god took care of all, rich or poor, in order to make sure that everyone was looked after in the nether. So the second hour was a realm of prosperity, kind of a mirror image of the earthly Nile Valley. If life in the Nile Valley was supposedly a paradise on earth, well, the second hour of the Duat was a paradise in paradise. It was a good place to be, and it was a good start to Ray's journey. The first two hours had proceeded smoothly, 
everything was going well. Now, it was time for Ray to begin facing some of the obstacles which would confront him over the course of his journey. He moved on to Hour 3. Hour 3, Meeting Osiris As Ray left the second hour and continued sailing down the river, he began to enter the territory that was considered the kingdom of the great god of the dead. He came into the realm of Osiris, and now he came face to face with the god himself, the first of what would be many meetings. Ray looked to the face of Osiris and acknowledged him. The god of the dead acknowledged him in return. This was a moment of great significance, with incredible symbolism for the pharaoh in whose tomb the Amduat was represented. In some perspectives, Ray was akin to the pharaoh himself, while Osiris stood in for the pharaoh's predecessor. The relationship between Ray and Osiris was a generational one, they were linked by blood. So, in the Egyptian idea, the concept of the pharaoh coming face to face with the great god of the dead was akin to a meeting between two different generations of the royal household. The two acknowledged each other, and so, Ray gained the protection of the Lord of the Dead. Good thing too, because as we enter the third hour, it becomes clear that dangers were beginning to mount. On either side of Ray's boat, figurines with the head of serpents now appear, carrying long swords. These are protectors of Ray, individuals meant to ward off dangers and demons, but they begin to appear in the third hour in ever greater numbers. This suggests that as Ray went further and further into the underworld, the threats which were around him began to increase. So, the protective gods began to gather around him, ready to ward off any evil which they might face. Hour 4, The Great Desert Ray now left the prosperous and comfortable lands of the first three hours, and entered into a space known as the Desert of Rosetjau. More specifically, this was called the Land of Sokar, who is upon his sand. Here, Ray was entering into a world of monsters and demons, of unbearable thirst and great danger all around. The Desert of Rosetjau, the Land of Sokar, was a desolate, sandy realm, in which snakes moved freely, threatening any who came across them. These snakes were unusual, for they had wings on their backs, and were possibly capable of flight, which we might mistake for dragons, but the Egyptians represented them quite literally as long snakes with human legs and large eagle's wings. Although their appearance was bizarre, these beings were unfathomably powerful, and Ray's bodyguard now drew close, ready to protect him. Crossing the desert presented its own unique challenge though, for Ray was travelling in a boat, and that was not much use on the sands. Some of Ray's servants now had to disembark the vessel, lash it up with ropes, and begin to haul Ray's bark across the deserts of Rosetjau towards their next destination. I can only imagine this was an unbearable ordeal for those servants, sweltering in the sun, fearful of these dragon snakes writhing all around within the sands, always hoping that just over the next horizon would be some form of salvation, and a land of abundance that would take them out of this realm of horrors. 
Unfortunately, their troubles were just beginning. Hour 5. The Crossroads The fifth hour of the Amduat is represented in a very unusual fashion for Egyptian art. It's presented as a sort of road, one which crisscrosses itself in a large X. In other words, it forms a large intersection taking place near the very centre of the underworld. This central crossing contained all the main elements of the Duat. It formed a microcosm of the underworld as a whole. As the Egyptians represented it, this intersection in the fifth hour contained everything like the grave of Osiris, Isis and Nephthys mourning over it, also a great scarab beetle who would represent the sun's rebirth at the end of this journey. Then there were beings called slaughterers, serpents, who could threaten the sun god and try to destroy his progress. Finally, right at the bottom is the cavern of the god Sokar, protected by two sphinxes. In this instance, Sokar is treated as a union between Ray and Osiris. So his appearance is sort of a shorthand for that relationship between Ray and Osiris which I just mentioned. In other words, the fifth hour is a total encapsulation of everything which would happen within the Amduat journey. As you can imagine, this made it a popular choice for more abbreviated versions which appeared in some royal tombs. If you didn't have space to represent the full 12 hours, as was ideal, you could, theoretically, just put the fifth hour on the walls of your tomb, and have that fill in the gaps. The fifth hour was like a summary chapter of the entire book. It was an important stopping place for Ray, for everything was contained within here, and all the power, all the magic of his journey could be released from this one moment. But although Ray was now renewing his magic and reconcentrating his power, his troubles were not yet over. As he came to the sixth hour, Ray was about to come face to face with his own mortality. So, the solar bark continued its journey, and Ray approached his death. Hour 6. The Infinite Waters Leaving the great desert of Sokar, Ray now came to a vast pit that was filled with the waters of the Noon. The Noon, or the primeval waters in which creation had begun, was the very darkest centre of the underworld. It was down here that Ray would encounter nothing less than his own corpse. Ray and his bodyguards now left the desert and came to the pit in which the Noon was contained. At the bottom of the pit there was a corpse, the corpse of a man wearing a crown in the shape of a scarab beetle. This corpse was an image of Ray, an image of the divine god's underworld existence. Down here at the very depths of the nether, nothing lived, and even Ray was subject to the rules of death. So part of the sun god's nightly journey was coming face to face with his own mortality, with the fact that he too was under the command of the most elemental of forces. At this most critical juncture of the night, Ray now had to perform an important ritual. Ray stepped forward and faced the image of his own corpse. Down here in the depths, Ray would need to unite with this corpse in order to renew his immortality and to guarantee his rebirth at the end of the night to come. For this to happen, the Egyptians invoked a lot of symbolism. 
The imagery of the sixth hour is filled with pictures relating to the royal power of Rei and of the kings of Egypt themselves. It is only in the sixth hour, down in the depths of the noon, that the pharaohs of Egypt appear as immortal beings. They sit on thrones, wearing their crowns, and stand in for the lineage of kings on earth, protectors and servants of Rei in the underworld. There are also sphinxes guarded by the eyes of Horus and Ra, great symbols of royal power and protection. Thoth is there as a baboon seated upon a throne. He is providing wisdom for Rei and giving him the knowledge he will need to complete his union. Finally, the whole affair is watched over by a number of guardians. These guardians take the form of serpents carrying large swords, and also royal scepters, the crook, which represents the Egyptian hieroglyph Heka, or to rule. These Heka crooks carry large swords and wear crowns, representing the idea that down here in the depths of the noon, the power of the kings of Egypt stands watchful guard over Ray's great ritual. Ray's boat approaches his burial mound. The god himself comes face to face with his corpse, and so the soul of Ray and the body of the god are united as one, and the rejuvenation of the land can begin. Now the mound shines forth with the light of the sun, a brilliant spectacle which causes all the gods to rejoice for his rebirth. Ray is back. His power has been renewed, and he is ready to begin his journey towards the upper world, ready to begin the day anew in just a few hours. Now, Ray moves on to the seventh hour, where it is time to unleash his power on the enemies of order, to destroy those who would threaten his creation. Hour 7, Midnight Having reunited with his corpse, Ray is now filled with power and strength. But this is also a moment of incredible danger, for Ray's power has attracted the attention of a great demon, a demon who seeks to encircle and consume the world. This is the moment in the Amduat where Ray is confronted by the demon Apophis. Apophis, or Apep in Egyptian, almost needs no introduction. He is an incredibly famous being from the pantheon of Egyptian gods, a mighty serpent whose power to destroy or consume made him a natural enemy of the creator Ray. As Ray's boat came through the Amduat, Apophis reared up in his mighty coils. His body took the form of sandbanks, trying to block the passage of the river so that Ray would be trapped and the demon could hypnotize him. Now the actual mythology of Apophis is quite obscure. He shows up with increasing frequency from the Middle Kingdom onwards, but really only begins to take true shape around the time of the New Kingdom. The trouble with Apophis is the trouble with inner being that opposes natural order. He is hard to define, in some ways he is shapeless, like smoke. He coils through the darkness of the noon, chasing Ray, attacking him at will, but you can never quite find him or define him. For simplicity's sake, we should imagine him as a giant serpent, for that was how the Egyptians represented him in a literal sense. In the seventh hour of the Amduat, Apophis comes forth to try and block the river. But Ray's bodyguard is always ready for this eventuality, and as the demon strikes, Ray's entourage springs into action. 
Ray's bodyguards, including gods like Isis and Seth, cast ropes around the god, binding him and tying him down. Other gods then leap forward with swords, and the demon is dismembered violently by the protectors of Ray. We see this in the imagery in the form of a large snake writhing along the ground, with many knives sticking out of its back. At either end, a goddess and a god hold ropes to tie him down. The idea is that disorder is bound by the powers of the gods. In other words, chaos is contained by the creators. Just to make sure that Ray was doubly protected, another snake now slithers forth from the darkness and coils itself protectively around the sun god's boat. This is the snake called Mechen. Mechen was a guardian. He watched over criminals, protected the boat of Ray, and ensured that the dangers and demons within the underworld were kept at bay so that creation could continue properly. So really, Apophis stood no chance against the powers of Ray and his bodyguards. Everyone was on Ray's side. Apophis was all alone. Naturally, the great demon of chaos was subdued. The warriors of Ray and the sun god himself were victorious. Now, they were ready to begin their ascent towards the eastern horizon, ready to begin the next day in splendor. Welcome back. Hour number eight, the giving of clothes. Having triumphed over the elements of disorder and chaos, Ray now returns to a well-organized, properly planned world. This is the eighth hour, a series of caverns which are guarded by mighty beings who sit on top of the hieroglyphs for cloth. This hour is concerned primarily with Ray dispensing clothing to some of the divine beings. If you want to think of this literally, it might reflect how priests in the temples of Egypt would clothe the statues of the gods on a daily basis. It seems as though clothing the gods was an important element of their daily rejuvenation. So, as Ray emerges from the darkness of the noon, one of his first duties is to make sure that the great beings of the underworld are given their proper raiment. Apart from the dispensing of clothes, the rest of the eighth hour is somewhat unremarkable. So, let's move on. Hour 9. The Divine Court Having left the eighth hour where he was dispensing clothes, Ray now comes to a place that is described as a court of law that, quote, fells the enemies of Osiris. This court takes the form of a number of different gods, including a number of seated elders, some Uraeus serpents standing upon poles, 
a number of goddesses, gods holding sheaves of wheat in order to represent the abundance of Osiris's world. They also include a mummified ram and a cow, symbolizing the protective gods who support Osiris. Like the previous chapter, not a lot happens in the ninth hour. It seems as though, having left the waters of the noon, Ray was now gathering the loyal ones around him, before making his final stretch towards the eastern horizon. So, having gathered those who were loyal, Ray now moved forward into the tenth hour. Hour 10. Those who have drowned. Ray now comes to a strange part of the underworld, a series of watery pools filled with the souls of those who have drowned in life. According to Egyptian superstition, to die by drowning was a particularly unfortunate way to go. Drowning involved the loss of the body and the complete decomposition of one's form. In other words, the soul had no place to return to. So, in the underworld, the souls of those who had drowned floated, like their bodies, within infinite waters. Fortunately, there was some salvation for these poor souls. In the tenth hour of the night, the royal god Horus came forth in order to offer these souls a second chance. Maybe they would never be immortal in the true sense, for they had no mummies and no offerings to receive, but still, they could enjoy the pleasures of the afterlife. So Horus collected the drowned souls from the pool each night and took them into the kingdom of Osiris. Good on you, Horus. The actual layout of this scene is quite interesting, I think. Around the pools themselves, four goddesses with serpents on their heads stood as kind of beacons of light to the souls moving through this part of the night. It seems that in the tenth hour, the Egyptians represented that unique darkness which settles on the land just before the dawn begins. These four goddesses stood in the pitch black with golden serpents on their heads in order to light the way for those around them. Ray was moving through the darkest part of the night, a time of utter blackness when no one could see. These goddesses gave a light to the dispossessed and hope to those travelling through. Under the bloom of these divine lampposts, Ray and his entourage now began their preparations for the dawn, which was just on the horizon, so to speak. Gods and goddesses now began to assemble in order to prepare for the mighty rituals which would see the sun god reborn onto the eastern horizon and the rejuvenation of the living world far above. Ray now approached the eleventh hour. Hour 11, the Eastern Gate. Rain now came to the penultimate hour of his journey. In this, preparations were well underway, gods bustling back and forth in order to make sure that everything was ready for the solar god's rebirth on the eastern horizon. As Ray's boat came closer to its destination, gods and goddesses of all kinds came forth carrying various accessories related to the ritual and to the royalty of Egypt itself. In particular, two large cobras now slithered forward ahead of Ray's boat. These were the goddesses Isis and Nephthys, patrons of various parts of Egypt. 
Each one of the goddesses carried one of the crowns of Egypt, the red crown of Lower and the white crown of Upper, upon their back. Before these two cobras were four avatars of the goddess Neith. Neith, a hunting and protection goddess, stood in two pairs of herself. Two of them wear the red crown, and two of them wear the white crown. Again, it's a kind of doubling, a symmetry and duality, which the Egyptians loved so much in their mythology. Around these goddesses with their crowns, other gods come forth. Some goddesses carry swords in order to defeat enemies. Some goddesses ride large serpents that supposedly spit fire at all of Ray's foes. Finally, the whole affair is watched over by the god Horus, making sure that all of Ray's enemies are defeated, or at least at bay, and preparing the way for the final ascent. We now come to the final hour of the Amduat. Hour 12, The Birth As Ray's boat approached the final stage, the eastern horizon, his entourage grew exponentially. The souls of the blessed dead now came forth, numbering in the millions. They attended the boat of Ray, hoping to participate in the resurrection at the next dawn, and so partake in their own immortality alongside the sun god. Ray, in his role as benefactor and protector, took these souls with him towards his rebirth. Just as he had dispensed wealth and happiness at the very start of his journey, now he took the aged souls of the blessed dead towards the horizon so that they could be renewed and enjoy their immortality again. The curious thing about this last hour is that by this point a great deal of time, much more than 12 hours, seems to have elapsed. The souls and the god himself come to the last hour of the night in a state of elderly decrepitude. They are aged, their bones are brittle, and their beards are long and white. But, through the power of the renewal ritual, they will be transformed into newborn babies, ready to begin their life again, and so enjoy the splendor of the sun god forever. Now, the actual mechanism of the rebirth is a fascinating little story. The rebirth happened inside the body of a giant serpent, a serpent called World Encircler. World Encircler, well, encircled the world, and it was his body through which Ray passed on his journey to the final horizon. Strangely, Ray and the Blessed Dead passed through the body of this large serpent in reverse. They entered at the rear and were vomited forth out of his mouth in order to be reborn. The reason for this is convoluted. It has something to do with time reversing at the last possible hour, but I'll cover that in a future episode, because that would just be confusing right now. The overall scene of the twelfth hour is a general scene of rejoicing and moving forward towards the eastern horizon. Gods and goddesses of various kinds, and the millions of blessed dead who accompany Ray in his boat, now stride forward confidently towards the end of their journey. Ahead of them, the large scarab beetle, Kepri, or Coming Forth, is ready to receive the solar orb and carry it up into the daytime sky. Kepri is the avatar of Ray in the morning. He is a manifestation of the great god at the moment of dawn. So, he appears here as one of the very last figures in the underworld, ready for his rebirth on the horizon. Just below Kepri, the mummified form of Osiris lies deep within the underworld. 
Osiris will not be making the trip up into the earthly realm. After all, he is forever committed to the underworld. But his presence here reflects the fact that Rey has promised him immortality. Even though Osiris must stay within the underworld forever, he will still continue to live on as its king. This is a promise renewed at the end of every night. As Rey goes towards his own rebirth, he makes sure that Osiris is properly acknowledged and comforted, even as the mummy lays within the earth. The moment of the dawn is here. Ra now joins with Kepri and is lifted up by the god Shu up into the sky. The sun crests the eastern horizon, a new day begins, and the world comes to life once more. So ends the Amduat. On the next episode of the History of Egypt, we're going to return to the historical narrative. We have two more short chapters to explore in the life and times of Amunhotep II, the pharaoh of Egypt. In the next episode, we will look at Amunhotep's strange decisions concerning his family and the officials of his government. There's a major shake-up in the royal administration during the reign of Amunhotep II, and the king seems to have thrown out a whole lot of individuals in one short space of time. So, join me soon for episode 83, The Brat Pack, on the History of Egypt podcast. <laughs>